the, there are things all, all over the, the, these texts that reflect a different sense of spirituality and even of human life from our own. Mm. Uh, th there's one that I, I make a, a big fuss about. Um, uh, I never use the word soul, S-O-U-L, mm -hmm. in my translation. It was a little shocking to, to people. The Hebrew writers had no notion of a split between body and soul uh, and a, a soul uh, surviving after the end of the body. Uh, that just, it begins a little bit with Daniel, but not really be, before that. Um, so the word that's always translated as soul uh, probably goes back to anima in the, the Vulgate is uh, it actually means life breath. I can feel searching for a deal on my last meal. Crack the seal, so much I can take. Gotta take a meal, constant battle. Got so many wounds, hope they start to heal. It's getting real, it's getting real, yeah. Seems like I'm a crab in a bucket. It'll take a while for I catch one buffer. Uh, feeling like I'm living robotic. Once I get the chance, I'm a living iconic. Always catch me on my high, ain't gon' never see me low. High above the cloudy skies, yeah, I'm focused on this growth. Nothing up to involve, ain't gon' never see me fall. Oh, my brother, get out soon, and this yeah. world is getting cold. Cutting head, taking college courses, all he see is gold. We'll call him up, tell a different stories, praying for his soul. Mama stay paying. Hello, my friends, and welcome back to the What If Project podcast. My name is Glenn, I'm your host, and this is episode number 164. Four, and you may or may not hear my cat meowing in the background. I don't know what her deal is, but as soon as I want to hit record, she decided it was time to talk, and so uh, that's what that's what you may hear or may not hear in the background. Her name is Pixie. Uh, we've had her for uh, ten years, and uh, she is Jordan, my my four year old daughter's uh, little buddy, and uh, so she is meowing up a storm as we as we speak but welcome welcome to episode number 164 uh today we have a very special guest they're all special guests but today we're talking to uh robert alter who actually wrote his very own translation and commentary of the hebrew bible so i'm gonna let that sink in for a moment he wrote his very own translation and commentary on the entire old testament scriptures uh, a massive undertaking right if you go to amazon look up his name uh, i have the collection it's it's amazing i got it when it was on sale for like i want to say like 65 dollars. it was a steal uh, this is a three three books in the set comes in a beautiful packaging hardcover uh really amazing stuff but i really enjoyed this conversation and really funny story uh, I reached out to him through email to invite him onto the show, and I talked to him. I said, you know, what the what the podcast is about, you know, that we uh, kind of wrestle with the question, what if there are ways of thinking about God and faith and the Bible that are different than what our traditions have handed us? He wrote back and said he wasn't really interested <laughs> in talking to me um, about faith and God and things like that. And I was like, well, actually, I said, I, I wanted to focus more with you on the scriptures, because as someone who was raised evangelical, and a lot of my listeners in the same boat, 
uh, I was taught that the Bible is this very narrow book, uh, and there's one way to understand it, one way to think about it. And if you don't think about it in this particular way, then you're wrong. I said, but you, having translated uh, the Old Testament, wrote your own commentary, surely you can bring some wisdom <laughs> to that conversation. He was like, oh, yes, I'll talk about that. <laughs> so we have a really good conversation uh, just about the some of the the things that go into the process of translating an ancient text from an ancient language into a modern language that the everyday reader doesn't really think about. Because when we open up our Bible, we just read it. But the reality is, is that text that you have in front of you, whatever translation it is, NIV, New Living, whatever, it's gone through a rigorous process of translation uh, to get to the point where it's on your shelf. And a lot of the stuff that goes into the translation, uh, sometimes it's very easy for uh, translators to bring their own agendas to the text, to read it through a particular lens. And so we talk a lot about that kind of stuff uh, in this episode. I'm really excited uh, to share it with you. Next week is our uh, three-year, sorry, three-year anniversary episode. I think last week I said it was four I don't know why. Um, it's been it's been it's been a long couple of months in the secret house for various reasons, uh, but it's the three year anniversary episode uh, next week, and it's going to be a solo episode uh, where I'm going to share with you uh, some of the uh, some of the transitions going on in my life, some of the seasons that are coming and going and changing, uh, what that means for me for my creative process, for the podcast. The podcast is not going anywhere, like I said last week. Uh, just some different things going on in the fall, trying to get into a new groove, uh, just a lot of different things. So I'm going to reflect on it a little bit in next week's episode. Hopefully it will encourage you in your own uh, life transitions. That's the goal. And then kind of share with you uh, what's what's going on. Uh, with the show. Special music today is from my friend Young Citizen. That's Y-U-N-G Citizen. Uh, we used to work together at the Apple Store. I no longer work for Apple. I'll tell you more about that uh, next week. Uh, but he's a really good friend of mine and someone who uh, his creative passion I really appreciate. It, it is inspiring to me. Uh, he's very encouraging and he's a uh, He's a hip-hop artist in Charlotte, North Carolina, and doesn't just make great music, but is really a big influencer uh, in the city, in his community, cares a lot about people, and uh, I really value that. So uh, go to Spotify, go to Apple Music, go to all the places, look them up, download the music, blast it from your speakers. Uh, also, Patreon, buy me a coffee, all the links in the show notes if you want to support the show, uh, the Heretic Club if you want to buy a t-shirt, a hoodie, uh, any kind of heretical goodies like that but all that to say my friends this is episode number 164 and it's my conversation with robert alter enjoy i just want to get right into it yeah technology taking over the mind state conversations thin it out just called a bad case then the base it off a character a bad trait ain't no way to take it back it's now it's too late and so they say it's our own fault Making own decisions, precisions took a void, not the right visions. Feeling so annoyed, no kids outside playing, they inside with the toys. Back in the day, I used to play into the street like song. Played up in the woods, I found my way back home. Both sets of friends moved, now I'm all alone. 
My brother moved from Massachusetts all along. We came to form a bond that could never break. Hey everybody, welcome back to the podcast. Uh, today we're sitting down with Dr. Robert Alter, whose uh, latest work is a complete translation and commentary of the Hebrew scriptures, which is nothing short of magnificent. So uh, Professor, welcome to the podcast and thank you so Glad much for here. taking time. I'm happy to be here. Thank you. So uh, I wanted to kind of gear our conversation today towards the uh, topic of uh, biblical literature and uh, the process or the I guess the art really of translating an ancient text, but uh, maybe also talk about some of the things that go into that, that the normal everyday reader might not, may, might not cross their, their mind on their mental radar. But before we get into that, maybe tell our listeners a little bit about yourself and who are you? Uh, what do you do? Some of the highlights of your journey that brought you to this place. Okay. Well, uh, I grew up in upstate New York in Albany and uh, did my undergraduate work as an English major at mm. Columbia College in New York, and then my PhD at Harvard. Mm. And um, I went back, uh, the, the PhD, by the way, is in comparative literature. So I went back to um, Columbia for my first four years of teaching in the uh, English department. And uh, I had no notion at the time that I would ever get into the Bible, although uh, I was deeply interested in, in the Bible. <laughs> so, uh, and probably it wouldn't have happened if I hadn't ended up at Berkeley. Mm. What happened is after four years, I was off from Columbia in a Guggenheim year. Uh, Berkeley made me an offer I couldn't refuse. They had just organized uh, the Department of Comparative Literature there, and they were looking for somebody in the department who would cover modern Hebrew literature, not biblical, modern Hebrew literature. And I had started publishing some critical articles uh, on, in that area, probably to the displeasure of my senior colleagues at Columbia, because that's not what they had hired me for. Mm. But anyway, uh, Colum uh, Berkeley offered me a 15, 50% raise in salary, which in those years went from 8,000 to 12,000. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, you have to look at everything in perspective. Sure. And, uh, and tenure. So mm -hmm. I gladly went to Berkeley yeah. and started teaching courses in modern Hebrew literature alongside courses on the European American novel and modernism and so forth, mm -hmm. all of which deeply interested me and still do. Mm. Uh, I'm, I'm kind of a, a gadfly, I flit from, from one area to, to another. <laughs> so uh, I'll give the short version uh, of this. Um, after I had been at Berkeley for about a decade, uh, I, I owed a, an article to a magazine that I was writing for regularly in, in those years, Commentary. And um, uh, I called the editor I was working with and said, how would you guys like a piece on the need for a literary perspective on the Bible? Hmm. And somewhat to my surprise, they said yes, because it was, it's ma it was mainly a, a journal focused on contemporary issues. Hmm. And so I wrote this article, I was still pretty young and it was kind of a feisty article scolding biblical scholars for, for spending all their time hunting down dubious Akkadian loan words and not knowing how to read a story. Mm. 
Mm. And I demonstrated how to read a story, but by uh, a discussion of uh, the fascinating uh, story of Judah and Tamar in uh, Genesis 38. Well, I thought it was going to be a one-off, but I got an outpouring of uh, letters. Uh, and I thought, well, people seem to be interested in this, and maybe I'm on to something. So I'll write another article uh, on this topic. I have a couple of more ideas on biblical narrative. Hmm. Uh, well, I ended up writing another three articles, not all for commentary. And um, uh, I was on my way to writing a book on biblical narrative, which uh, came out a long time ago now, 1981, that's uh, 40 years. Hmm. Much to my amazement, it's been continuously in print all that time. <laughs> it's a kind of slow motion bestseller. Yeah, <laughs> that's because, the year before I was born. <laughs> I was born '82. Right, because you know, if if it sells three thousand, four thousand copies a year, and you multiply that by forty, you get a lot of copies for sure. Uh, anyway. Um, I still thought, well, okay, I've got this book out of my system. I'm not strictly speaking a Bible scholar. Mm. That's it. But then the book was extremely well received. So I thought, well, maybe why not a book on biblical poetry? And um, by that time, I, I was sliding down the slippery slope <laughs> of biblical studies, although I, I never abandoned modern literature. And I wrote all kinds of things on modern literature over the next uh, 30 or 40 years. And, and still I'm a, a, just last month, I had a book on the Balkhoff mm. that came out. Um, and uh, translation was still not on the horizon. And that was another happy accident. Mm. Um, a very able editor from W.W. W. Norton came to see me, a man named Steve Foreman. And uh, he proposed a couple of different projects that I might do for them, one of them having to do with, with the Bible. And I said, yeah, you could make a good book in that series out of Genesis, but if I did it, I have to do my own translation because there's something really wrong with all the translations. <laughs> and there I was translating the Bible. So that, that's yeah. the short version of a somewhat complicated story. Yeah. Now, when you say that, like a lot of scholars, you said, didn't know how to read a story. What does that, what does that mean? Like if a scholar knows how to translate a word, but not read an actual story. Okay. Let me back up uh, one step. Yeah. Where do biblical scholars, and uh, it's biblical scholars who are responsible for th these various translations by committee, mm. uh, various according to denomination that were done in the second half of the 20th century. So they get trained at places like Harvard, mm. Harvard Divinity School, Yale Divinity School, University of Chicago, and in the UK, of course, Oxford and Cambridge. Uh, and they study all kinds of things that are useful for understanding the Bible, archeology, span ancient Near Eastern history. Uh, they probably pick up a couple of other ancient Near Eastern languages. Uh, and they do a lot of work with, with what's called, called 
text critical analysis, you know, the, the various components of the text, how it evolved, uh, where it goes, uh, where it seems to be scribally defective and so forth. Okay. But you will never find a course in any of those august institutions mm. on prose style in the Bible. Mm poetic form in, in the Bible or, or narrative technique in the Bible. And it, it's my strong conviction that all those are crucial to seeing what the Bible is really about. Mm. Because uh, for reasons we can't make out, this rather uh, small uh, provincial culture of ancient Israel sandwiched in between great empires produced writers of, of genius. Mm. And they decided to convey the new message of monotheism in artful narrative and sometimes quite brilliant poetry. Mm. So in order to see what they're, they're all about, you have to see the, the poetic form and a translation has to do its best to find English equivalents for, for the, um, uh, the literary form. Yeah. So your translation then, so you, you translated the Hebrew Bible and you wrote a commentary on it as well, which is no small, small feat, right? That's a fairly large project. And so I guess like my first real question would be like, what, what makes your work different than like the other translations that are out there? Like, I have an NIV on my shelf. I have the New Living Translation, all these different translations. Like what makes Robert Alter's translation so much different? Okay, uh, I will start with the general style uh, and mm -hmm. then I'll, I'll offer a couple of specific uh, instances which are a little different than general style. Uh, the, the books that uh, the Hebrew Bible comprises were written anywhere from, I don't know, uh, 28, 2700 years ago to uh, the, well, the latest is Daniel, which is second century BCE. Mm. So that's a long time ago. Now, it, it, and they exhibit, although the style changes with some of the later biblical books, that they exhibit a, a certain unity of style, uh, which is, uh, in the in the prose uh, narrative prose, it, it's kind of very decorous but very simple. It, mm. it achieves extraordinary effects through simplicity and, and a deliberate, deliberately limited vocabulary. Now, if you translate that into um, uh, an English that sounds as though it were written the day before yesterday, I think it's a disaster. Like um, if a, a good example is terms for sex, the uh, the moderns don't know what to do with this. So the, the in one translation, uh, I uh, noticed that, that Potiphar's wife says to Joseph, "Make love to me," which is not what an what an ancient Egyptian aristocratic lady would say. Mm -hmm what somebody's mistress might say, or somebody's deprived wife in the 21st century. Uh, or uh, other translations use uh, 
ponderous modern terms like to cohabit with, to have intimate relations with. When the King James in this respect got it right, you just follow the Hebrew, to lie with. So I think it works much. So, so I try to honor that general style. Then in the narrative prose, uh, I think rhythm is very important as it is in almost any conceivable literary prose. Mm. Uh, and uh, that is totally ignored by the, the translators. Uh, and I, I try to honor that. Mm. Now, the, there are also all kinds of local, let's say expressive literary effects that um, are important for the meaning and um, uh, you need to, if it's at all possible, uh, try to find English equivalents. For example, word play and sound play. Mm. Now, I'll, I'll just offer one example. I don't want to run on too long. Uh, from the very first, from the, the, the get-go, the beginning of Genesis, <laughs> um, uh, most translations say something, uh, the, and the earth then was chaos and, and void, or, or formlessness and void. Now, the Hebrew says, tohu vavohu, you hear the rhyme. Yeah. Tohu, we know, means emptiness. It's like the, the emptiness of the wilderness and so forth. Uh, and uh, bohu, the, the other term, may have been invented by the writer to rhyme with tohu. Mm. So what it is, we have the, this kind of formation in English. We have terms like harem scarum and helter skelter. Mm. And those tend to be terms that indicate a kind of confusion or disorderliness and a mixing together of things, which is exactly right <laughs> for the, the chaos before creation. Yeah. Yeah. Now, Alas, I could not figure out a, a, a rhyming pair. Mm. So instead I settled for alliteration, which is halfway to rhyme. So in my translation, it's, and the earth then was welter and waste. Mm. Now, no one else ever, yeah. ever bothered to fiddle with that. And, and I, as a translator, I'm, I was fiddling with that kind of thing all the time. Hmm. So is that what you mean when you refer to rhythm? Like when you say rhythm is ignored no, by translators? Rhythm. No, that's sound play. Okay, rhythm, uh, I can give one example. I'll stick yeah. with the first chapter of, of Genesis. Uh, when we get the report uh, of the creation of the heavenly luminaries, my translation read, and I, I put this down in my draft without even thinking, <laughs> the great light for dominion of day and the small light for dominion of night and the stars. Then mm -hmm. I stopped myself, called, why did I do that? Why dominion? Well, there's a technical reason because it reproduces a, a grammatical form in, in the Hebrew. Mm -hmm. Most translations say to rule over or to govern uh, what one dreadful translation, the Jewish publications, I said to, 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 to dominate mm. in the night, which mm. is terrible. Uh, for, I mean, it shows the tin ear for English that the modern translators uh, have, 
or had, uh, because it's the Soviet Union dominates the, the small right. states uh, of Eastern Europe after World War II. That's the way you dominate. Mm -hmm. but, but then I realized that when I said the great light for dominion of day and the small light for dominion of nights, it was because I was replicating the Hebrew cadence. Mm -hmm. And the Hebrew, I'll uh, uh, just recite it for a second, uh, sounds like this. Et ha-maor ha-gadol dominion of day it's the same cadence now uh, your listeners your watchers may, may think <laughs> well, why does that matter you know <laughs> sure fooling around by a guy who's too literary <laughs> I don't think it is yeah you can't separate rhythm from meaning. Yeah. And so why is this? It's a beautiful cadence. Hmm. The great light, well, uh, uh, in my equivalent of the Hebrew, the great light for dominion of day and the small light for dominion of night and the stars. Well, why is that cadence significant? Th this is the priestly version uh, of the creation story. And in that version, creation proceeds in, in a kind of choreographed way from day one to the first Sabbath. And everything is orderly, harmonious, uh, uh, coordinated. A and the lovely cadence of that sentence really is a kind of subliminal confirmation of the writer's sense of the beautiful orderliness uh, of creation. So you, you see what, why rhythm is not a, icing on the cake yeah. it's intrinsic to the meaning. Yeah. It seems like what, what you really do in this, like in this translation is you, you really honor, you bring honor to the tradition of the, of the uh, Jewish writings, because like you said, like a lot of these people were very talented and very gifted in the way that they wrote and the way that they shared the stories. And I think to your point, so much of that, like so much of what you just shared, I would never know by picking up an NIV translation that those things were important to uh, the Hebrew writers. But when I pick up your translation, it's it's much more clear and it's much more evident, especially in your commentary piece where you add your thoughts around that, you know, as well. Now, maybe I should add one other uh, general comment about how my translation differs. Hmm. Um, both Christians and Jews see Hebrew scripture through um, the prism of their own later tradition, which of course, uh, understandably, they regard as the authentic continuation mm. of Hebrew scripture. Uh, and I, I want to emphasize, this is equally true for Jews and for Christians, uh, th that is, rabbinic Judaism is as much a development from, but also a departure from Hebrew Bible mm. as Christianity is. Mm. Uh, nobody ha has uh, uh, first claim to, to absolute authenticity. <laughs> so uh, th th there are things all, all over the, the, these texts that reflect a different sense of 
spirituality and even of human life from our own. Mm. Uh, th there's one that I, I make a, a big fuss about. Um, uh, I never use the word soul, S-O-U-L, mm -hmm. in my translation. It was a little shocking to, to people because- I was going to ask you about that, yeah. <laughs> well, uh, first, the, the, the Hebrew writers had no notion of a split between body and soul uh, and a, a soul uh, surviving after the end of the body. Uh, that just, it begins a little bit with Daniel, but not really be before that. Um, so the word that's always translated as soul uh, probably goes back to anima in the, the Vulgate is, uh, it actually means life breath. Mm. Um, and by extension, the life of a particular person and also, uh, uh, th this is uh, perhaps a little confusing. It, it means, uh, it can mean in certain contexts, throat or neck. Mm. How does it get to be that? Be, and that, I haven't exhausted all the meanings. <laughs> uh, it means throat or neck because the throat is the passageway for the life breath. So that's what we literary scholars call metonymy, where things are compared not because they're similar, but because they're contiguous. Okay. Mm -hmm. Now, uh, the here's an example where uh, it might give a little jolt to readers. In one of the Psalms, very beautiful Psalm, mm -hmm. the speaker says, first in the traditional translations, my soul, my nefesh, my soul thirsts for you, God, as uh, uh, in a parched land without water. Now, when I looked at that, I said, what does nefesh mean here? And I looked at the parched land without water, and I said, it's all about thirst. Mm. And I translated it, my throat thirsts mm. Yeah. Now that's less beautiful than my soul <laughs> thirst for you, but uh, it's powerful in its own way. That that is, the speaker has such a longing for God. Yeah. That it's like a man wandering through the desert under the blazing sun, and he's dying of thirst, and he needs water. He needs yeah. his his throat to, to to be the conduit for for water, um, and uh, I, I would extend that to a generalization about the expression of spirituality in the Bible, mm. that it's anchored in the body, mm. uh, which is not the way Jews and Christians came to think of spirituality uh, afterwards. And, um, uh, and I, um, I tried in my translation, uh, even though I have to say, this may be offensive to some believing readers, mm -hmm. but I have been amazed by the number of emails I've gotten from uh, Episcopalian nuns, Presbyterian organists, uh, <laughs> Methodist preachers, and so on and so forth, who, who really love the translation. So it, it seems to address a, a need that, that wasn't addressed before for religious people. Mm. 
Yeah. So I'll give just one more example. Sure, please. Um, the 23rd Psalm, which <laughs> many of us English speakers know more or less by heart in King James Version. Don't touch that <laughs> Psalm. <laughs> Leave that Psalm alone. <laughs> okay. So I want to zero in on one phrase. Yeah. King James Version. Thou anointest my head with oil. Mm. That's just half of a line. Now, all the modern translations follow that. They say, of course, they, they modernize the verb. They say, you anoint my head with oil, mm. or you have anointed my head with oil. Mm. Uh, but that is not what the Hebrew verb means. Mm. The, the, the Hebrew verb that means to anoint, it's cognate with the noun from which we get Messiah, mm. is used only in two context in the Bible for the consecration of kings and the consecration of the high priest. Hmm. So in other words, it's uh, context in the Bible is um, either uh, sacerdotal having to do with the, with the, the, uh, the priestly uh, officiants mm -hmm. or it's political. And from the political, we get messianic in the other sense, because beginning with some prophecies in, in Isaiah, the ideal king then becomes the uh, divine king who will come to redeem the world. Okay, mm -hmm. But that verb does not appear in the 23rd Psalm. What is the verb? <clears throat> it's not the verb mashiach, mashach which is connected to Mashiach, Messiah, mm -hmm. but it's the verb dashen. Now, dashen means to make uh, luxuriant. In fact, there's a noun derived from that verb that, that means something like fertilizer. Mm -hmm. So we're very far away <laughs> from, from anointing. Yeah. And, and uh, I, after struggling, I couldn't find an exact equivalent. I said, you moisten my head with oil. <laughs> now, what is that all about? It's about the good life here and now. Uh, it's a, if your uh, viewers re remember the Odyssey, you remember that w when a, um, a, a wayfarer comes into a, a, a palace, they, they bathe him and they rub him all over with uh, virgin olive oil, mm. including his head. Uh, and <laughs> That's what it's about. That, that is, the speaker in this psalm is, is saying that though I've um, uh, run great danger, uh, I've been in the valley of the shadow of death, um, you not only protected me, but you've provided me all the good things. You've laid out a table before yeah. me, e mm. even though my enemies are out there, mm. and you have uh, anointed my head with oil. Mm. Uh, so it, it's it's not really there's nothing messianic in, in the the psalm and at the end of the psalm I, I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever the Hebrew doesn't say forever mm. it says uh, for length of days which I the many long days mm. uh, now what's the difference between that if you say forever then the house of the Lord is up there right it, 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 uh, uh, it's a, a heavenly house. Yeah. 
which the, the psalmist doesn't have in mind. So the house of the Lord is a temple, the mm. temple in Jerusalem. So what the speaker is saying is after you, you provide me feasts and you uh, enable me to, to rub my head with good olive oil, mm. I can, what I would like to do is hang out around the, the temple in Jerusalem, hear the Levites' beautiful songs, Mm. Uh, the incense and so on and so forth yeah that's beautiful i think and correct me if i'm wrong but if i'm hearing you correctly like when we think about things like rhythm we think about things like narrative we think about things like like these words and what they truly mean like soul meaning more throat and things like that it perhaps helps us get to maybe a little bit deeper to the core of what the original writer might have intended when yeah, they wrote these things right yeah, we try to. We try to. <laughs> does that go? Does that tie into a lot then into the commentary piece? Because obviously this is a two-part project, right? Because you did a translation, but then you also wrote a commentary based upon what you translated. So does all of this stuff then tie into the commentary piece as well? Yeah. Yeah. A, I'll explain what happened with the commentary. <laughs> uh, it was happenstance, just like the translation project was a happenstance. Mm-hmm. Um, I originally did not intend to write a commentary. I, I figured, well, translator's notes. And, and everyone is familiar with translator's notes. Uh, that, that is, if there's an obscure word in the original or word with double meaning, the, the, it'll be annotated, mm-hmm. uh, that, that sort of thing. So that's what I intended to do. Yeah. And I got maybe two or three verses down into chapter one of Genesis. And I said, to them, hey, there are all kinds of things going on that um, I uh, really want to talk about because the, the existing commentaries don't. In, in keeping with what I said about the lack of literary training of biblical scholars, mm-hmm. uh, it does not inc- occur to them that it's important to discuss things like narrative point of view uh, dialogue, rhythm, and, and mm. so forth. Uh, and so I started writing a commentary. Now, the commentary is not exclusively literary because uh, there are m- many features of the biblical world that are unfamiliar to our world. Sure. And those need explaining as well. And that's what, what the, the usual uh, scholarly commentaries do but uh, but I, I think that what distinguishes my commentary is the way that uh, I talk about all the literary aspects of the texts. Mm, yeah, I think that's definitely a piece that's lacking because most most commentaries are very applicational. Like this is what it says, and this is what to do with it, almost like you would find in a in a sermon. But I feel like yours brings into the picture a lot of this literary work that a lot of people might not be aware of. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, real quick, what would be, what would be one other, we talked about Genesis, we've talked about uh, Psalm 23. What would be one other, you think, big, uh, maybe piece from the Hebrew scriptures that people would be really familiar with, that they would be surprised to hear that you took a different twist on it? Well, I'm going to venture something here uh, that has to do with with a, a whole 
category of scripture, biblical okay. poetry. Yeah. Now, biblical poetry is uh, very compact. Mm -hmm. And it's compact because, well, in, in every language, uh, poets exploit certain intrinsic features of the language for expressive purposes. For example, in, in English, because that simply is a kind of predominant pattern uh, of English words, the, um, although there are many different meters used by poets, the, the, the dominant one is, is iambic, with, mm. you know, da, 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 like that. Um, in biblical Hebrew, uh, we uh, the, um, the the lines work with usually two components, sometimes three. Hmm. Uh, I, I, there's often a, a certain parallel in meaning, but I, I won't go into that uh, just now. Sure. But there's also a parallel of rhythm hmm. that is usually it's three beats, that is three accents in each half of the line. There, there are some variations with very few syllables in between the accented ones. Mm. Uh, now, uh, why is biblical Hebrew so compact? First, it doesn't have a, a lot of polysyllabic words. Mm. Second, um, it, it is what linguists call a synthetic language, which means that you combine the object of a verb with the verb by putting a little suffix on it, uh, and you don't have to stipulate the uh, pronominal subject of a verb, mm -hmm. because the way it's conjugated tells us. So uh, uh, very, uh, very often you can say in biblical Hebrew, in two or three words, but takes four or five or even more than, than, than that. Like, the Lord is my shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd, five words. The Hebrew is uh, Adonai Roi, two words. You, see, you can't always uh, reproduce that. Sure. But um, what I discovered was that there are ways to tamp down the English language to, to make it more compact, closer to, to the Hebrew. Um, okay, I, I'm, I just want to uh, recite a line in, in Hebrew from Isaiah. Sure, please. Uh, to give you a sense uh, of uh, the compactness. Mm -hmm. This is in the first chapter. I'll, I'm going to pause between the two halves of the line, so your viewers, listeners can pick up the structure. Oi, goi, chote, am, kevet, avon. I hope you could hear exactly three beats in yeah. each half and yeah. not much in between. I translated, woe, offending people, uh, nation weighed down with sin. So it's not quite as compact as the, the Hebrew, but you, you see the, the idea. And I strive for that all over the place with, with uh, ancient Hebrew poetry. I'll give you one example where there was a very simple solution. Hmm. Um, 
in Psalm 30, we have um, the King James Version followed pretty much with minor variations by, by all the moderns I've looked at. In, in the middle of the Psalm, uh, it's um, uh, the uh, speaker who apparently is in grave illness pleads to God not to allow him to die. Mm. Someone would, would in that situation would do. So he, mm. he says, um, let's see, how does it go? Um, uh, what prophet, okay, King James Version followed by the moderns, mm -hmm. what prophet is in, there in my blood? Blood meaning death. Mm -hmm. uh, and you can hear that it's arrhythmic. It, it sounds like prose. What prophet is there in my blood, right? Mm -hmm. Now I looked at that. And by the way, in modern printings, the is there is italicized which is not for emphasis. I hope most of your viewers are aware of this, not for emphasis, but in order to indicate that the, those words are implied in the Hebrew, but they're mm -hmm. not actually there. They're very scrupulous right. about this. Yeah. So I said, wait a minute, you don't need is there. If you take that out, what do you get? What profit in my blood, which is just exactly like ma, Betza bidami in the Hebrew. Mm, yeah. See? Huh. So there are these various strategies which I, I developed uh, as I went on translating biblical poetry, which do bring the English closer, not identical. And mm. sometimes the, the, there are failures in every translation, but closer to the, the Hebrew and the effects of the Hebrew than the pre-existing pre translations. Yeah, well, you definitely capture a lot of the magic, I think, that is lost oftentimes in translation. So, uh, but hey, this has been a wonderful conversation, but we are just about out of time. Uh, but thank you so much for making time for me. I'm sure you have a very busy schedule, but I appreciate you taking time for me and my listeners. Well, it's been a pleasure talking with you. Thank you. And where can people go real quick to find you online? Do you have any kind of website or anything like that for people yeah, to go to? With, with, with <laughs> well, I, I believe that, that there are at least a couple of my lectures, maybe more than those that, that uh, you can access on YouTube. They're on there. And if you Google your name, there's a, a, a plethora of work out there too. <laughs> awesome. I'll put all your, I'll put the links to your book and your work in the show notes and uh, I'll talk to you soon. Okay, great. Nice story. Wish I had a mansion. Wish I was dressed up fancy. Wish I on a pot on some with the rainbow by the time Clancy. Wish I had no debt. Maybe then I can't flex. Go and hit a run, I'm a check. Wish I had no other sand, most beat, I'm a chest. Wishing for my people. Wish I had more better leaders. Have enough to make our own land. Name my own beach and we bring our own sand. Where we live is so bland. So much for high on demand. Tiptoe around through and high lows. Feel like James Brown, love we go in here to dance. Let me talk. At the end of the day, we know who's at a fault. We got our hands up, ready for a box. Undisputed, got the own lot. Champion, go ahead, call the ambulance. So we said our own ambience. Dub TTG, train to go. Let's talk, no rambling. Wishing I had something foreign, wishing I had something foreign. Knowing that I can afford it, knowing that I can afford it. It's real love, it's real love, but I just ignore it. It's all love, it's all love, but I just ignore it.
real love, but I just ignore it. Wish I had red bottoms on my feet. Everything falls on me. Then I start clicking my heels to the ride. Did this beat neat? Ever want to follow my speed? Let's close those motifs. Hey. Carolina Rose on freeze. Hey. Wishing I could fly to the keys. Hey. That will be more free. Hey. Something in my mind hit the dough. Put on my fresh fit. Uh. Toast Sir Charles, let's go. We about to go and get it. Uh. Let me talk. At the end of the day, we know who's at the fall. We got our hands up, ready for box. Undisputed, got the own lot. Champions. Wishing I had something foreign. Wishing I had something foreign. Knowing that I can afford it. Knowing that I can afford it. It's real love, it's real love. But I just ignore it. It's all love, it's all love. But I just ignore it. Wishing I had something foreign. Wishing I had something foreign. Knowing that I can afford it, knowing that I can afford it. It's real love, it's real love, but I just ignore it. It's all love, it's all love, but I just ignore it.